for tuning in. My name is Angel Fall, and you are watching Victims to Victorious. I am broadcasting from Cleveland, Ohio. And last week, we were fortunate enough to be in what some people call Chirac, which is an unfortunate name, but we were fortunate enough to be in the city of Chicago. And on August 9th, we broadcasted from the Chicago Fire Brigade. We had uh, three guests with us live, and that was Dr. Abdullah Pratt, an ER physician and a gun violence reduction advocate, as well as Dr. Michael McGee, who is also a um, emergency room physician and gun violence advocate. And they spoke to some of the medicalization of gunshot wounds and the societal impetus. The expert on the societal impetus only was Klebena Rasulu, and he uh, gave us pieces on why he's concerned about the level of violent, violent lyrics, particularly in rap music, and those stations that play the music that is targeted in these same areas where you see a lot of gunshot wound or firearm assault. So we are going to review uh, some of that show and I am going to, um, you will see me looking down at my phone. Of course, phones have become, um, phones have become the new Encyclopedia Britannica. But some of you don't, don't even know, know what that is or the World Book Encyclopedia. So that's what you will see me doing when I, when I look down. So um, Dr. McGee, let me tell you about Dr. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Michael McGee. The reason why he was on the show is that the 100 black men who I contacted, and I had contacted them previously, I had the, um, I had the experience of being invited to Morehouse Medical School about, about six years ago uh, to present a paper on a, what's called a white paper on reducing gun violence in uh, African-American males. And the reason why it's important for you to understand is that um, African-American males are, of course, overrepresented, and that's the epidemiology language. They are overrepresented in the, the gunshot wound firearm results and in the morbidity and the mortality. So what does that mean? That means that morbidity means, and these words are often used interchangeably, with the normal population, but morbidity means you get sick. So if you get shot, one of your illnesses could be, uh, you could end up with one kidney, the bullet penetrates your kidney. So now you're on dialysis and you're 19 years old um, and you need a transplant. And let's just say when treatment efficacy rules are in place and when doctors have to make ethical and moral uh, decisions, they use their own personal filters. Now they're gonna say that it's layered in their profession, but if they're going to take a look at who gets on a transplant list, you could best believe that African-American people are not at the top, and any type of perceived criminal is not going to be on the top of the transplant list. So that's just, uh, that's just something to keep in mind when you're looking at that. So that's the morbidity. The mortality means that you succumb to your injuries, that in fact, you are no longer living because of your injuries, that you have, that you are dead. It's just that simple. So um, Dr. Michael McGee was on our show and he is the founder of Pop Violence. He actually lives in Indiana, but practices medicine, I believe in both Indiana and Illinois. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about him and discuss, pro this is one program that we can discuss. And if you're listening and you're an advocate, if you're listening and you've been victimized, think of the ways that this problem can be solved. Today's show is going to focus on the public health uh, issue as we review it in reference to the show that we did and, and the ways that this can be solved. So Dr. Michael McGee, and I'm reading from the um, NWIT, NorthwestITimes.com. Dr. Michael McGee, POP founder and chief medical 
Director, Emergency Department Group at the Methodist Hospitals, some of this might have changed since 2017, talks to dozens of Northwest Indiana teens about careers in the medical field. This four-day program focuses on college preparatory skills and students will learn CPR, basic life-saving skills, and students will receive heart saver, tutoring, heart saver certificates through the POP Foundation, the POP Foundation on Facebook. That is, that is something that he organized. And so they have programs, and look, the programs that they have are multi-pronged. Now, we're assuming a demographic here. If you're an African-American male without a legal uh, father in the home, you are at risk. If your mother had you as a teenager, you are at risk. If your mother didn't graduate from high school, you are at risk from gun violence. If you live in an area with gangs, of course, and if you don't know personally how to solve your personal conflicts, your interpersonal conflicts with something other than with something other than violence. So they just had a program actually uh, that ended the Friday before he came to the Black Fire Brigade to discuss things that they do. So they have um, several programs that allow people to see if they can join, to allow people to have positive interaction with their um, positive interaction with their community and to build the self-esteem and the skill set of the young man. If you take someone who's at risk for gun violence and you teach them these medical skills as a teenager, are you in fact influencing their lifelong pursuits? And I would say yes. So it gives them a purpose. It lets them see how they can be functioning later. A lot of times when you're 18 or 19 years old, you don't think of yourself as a 59 year old, all right? So if you just tuned in, we are about uh, five minutes into Victims to Victorious. Uh, this show will go for about 40 minutes today. We are reviewing our last show, The Societal Pathogen, The Cures, The Culture and the Cures. And if you look in the background, you can see, um, you can see our new logo from Victims to Victorious, as well as the um, new logo, well, the, the logo for Black the Black Talk Radio Network. So um, the Black Talk Radio Network is in the background. It's silver and black. It may be reversed in your camera or in your view. And uh, you can't see it right now, but if you follow me, Angel Fall host, it's Angel Fall host on Facebook, you can see our new graphic. At the end of the gun muzzle is actually a flower because I wanted to indicate that there is hope. And uh, I want to thank my... Um, my graphic artist, um, Matthew Walcott, he is a, a teenager living in Chicago and uh, he sent me a message on Facebook and I said, sure, I'd love to have you uh, participate. So that is the story of Dr. McGee. Look for POP Violence on Facebook, POP Violence on Facebook and like their pages and like their activities. And if you are trying to organize a grassroots activity, remember that gun violence can be solved if you believe it's a, an, a disease. So gun violence numbers can be reduced in terms of what I'm gonna call new infections. And new infections lead, that's called the incidence of the disease, I believe, uh, a lot of times as epidemiologists, we actually get that uh, mixed up ourselves. So the bur burden of the disease is what's going on over time. So historically, African-American males represent 90% of all homicides, and we're, not, we're less than 20% of the entire United States population. White men who die from a gun, and I keep saying this over and over again, I do get some critiques. I'm showing this as a comparison. Suicide prevention in white men is not the focus of this program. There are several people who work on that. And one of the interesting things about the white male suicides, when you talk about access to guns, and this of course relates to the African-American homicide victims too, 
Most of the white men who choose to kill themselves with a gun, the gun has been in the home. In other words, they don't get up, wake up, go to the gun store, buy the gun, come home and shoot themselves. That's not a, a normal occurrence. So how do you know this? When the weapon is used, when someone commits suicide, it is actually considered a crime. So some of you may raise your eyebrows at that or, or say I'm mistaken. No, in many jurisdictions, suicide is a crime because it has taken the life of a person. So if a weapon is found at the scene, the police treat the weapon, they're supposed to, even in these rural backwoods places in the United States of America, the sheriff, the county sheriff, um, the local police are supposed to investigate the ownership of the gun used, the weapon at the scene. So then what they're finding is that the victim, God rest his soul, might have used a weapon that his father had in the house when he was growing up as a child or his grandfather had in the house. So this is what I want people to understand. So very often these guns that the, the white male suicide victims use, they are actually registered. They are actually legal weapons. In the case of the African-American male teenagers and the risk, um, the risk runs a range of about age 14 to about 39. You can leave a comment on um, my page on the Black Talk Radio Network to tell me if I've gotten that statistic right. So their guns are often not registered. They have been purchased by straw buyers, for instance. Um, they've bought, been bought illegally on the street. And one of the, um, one of the technical pieces of reducing gun violence, and so you might ask, how could this be? If now California had a law, and I need to check, but California had a law that was going to be instated that required micro-stamping of bullets. And micro-stamping of bullets would allow you to trace the gun, would be able, you'd be able to trace the gun directly. Many of us who watch crime shows see that there are ballistic, uh, ballistic reports, meaning that they can identify by the, the grooving and the, the way the gun, the bullet spiraled through the muzzle, they can identify the weapon. But now, microstamping is available. So what this would mean is that the gun could be traced directly to the owner. So it's a, it's a bit different, it's quite different. If this were the case with these African-American male homicides, you, you might say, well, what difference does it make? I'm not saying it's going to make a difference in the risk factor. However, most of the black men who are killed by other black men. Remember, African-American men are normally killed by a friend, acquaintance, or a relative. If the gun is discharged and the bullets are found, the micro stamp can trace the, the gun, the bullet, back to the gun and therefore back to the shooter. But of course, we're saying, well, what happens if these guns are unregistered? This does get tricky. However, if the gun was stolen or registered at one point, then it's easier to trace the, what I'm gonna call the etymology of, of the weapon. So that's, that's part of the prevention in terms of the technical piece. Now returning to last week's live show in Chicago, uh, we're recapping that, the societal pathogen uh, gun violence. We had a guest who was Dr. McGee's protege, his name was Dr. Abdullah Pratt. And Dr. Abdullah Pratt was a very interesting guest because not only did he have, um, not only did he have um, professional experience as an ER doctor, uh, Dr. Abdullah Pratt is an emergency medical physician in Chicago and he's been in practice uh, for less than Three years. Now, one of the interesting things about Dr. Abdullah Pratt is that he, <clears throat> he had a brother shot and killed by a gun. So that's one of the things that makes him interesting is that he doesn't just have, um, he doesn't just have experience as an ER doctor. He has experience as someone who's going through grief, who's been through grief. And there is an article um, on his program, and I'm going to read it. This comes from the Sweet 
Water Foundation. So if you're listening and you live in Minnetonka, Minnesota, if you live in Cleveland, Ohio, if you live in South Carolina, North Carolina, wherever you are, and the African-American males are overrepresented in the homicides by gun, firearm assaults, deadly firearm assaults, in the morbidity, they are shot and paralyzed, they are shot and need a kidney, they are shot in their, they, their lungs, one lung, has part of a lung has to be removed. They are shot and they're no longer cognitively functional. These are all programs that you can emulate or you can use them to inspire you to create something. So I'm gonna read about Dr. Abdullah Pratt. I'm gonna go over the risk factors, what kind of prevention can be used. So building critical connections with Dr. Abdullah Pratt, this article came out year ago, July 4th, 2019. And you can find it on the Sweetwater Foundation uh, website, sweetwaterfoundation.com. Anything you don't hear right now during the live broadcast or the archive broadcast that you need clarification on, you can send me a direct message on Twitter, on Air Angel. You can also follow me on Facebook, Angel Fall Host. That's my name on Facebook. You can also send messages to uh, the uh, line producer, her, uh, her Facebook page is L Rodriguez, R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-S. And of course, the Black Talk Radio Network has been founded by Scotty, Scotty Reed, and he is the sound engineer and the executive producer of this show. And he has every platform available for listening to the podcast. Go to the Black Talk Radio Network, and you can see my show and others. <clears throat> Dr. Abdullah Pratt, an emergency medical physician at the University of Chicago Medical Center, first visited Sweetwater Foundation via friend and SWF team member, Taryn Randall. Dr. Pratt is a native of Chicago's Southside emergency medicine attending physician and assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Chicago. He is committed to serving his community, not only through his work at Chicago's at University of Chicago's Trauma Center, but also by sharing his knowledge with both community members and his professional peers. At Sweetwater Foundation's second annual Juneteenth celebration, Dr. Pratt led a pop-up booth with Dr. Ed McDonald, a gastroenterologist, chief, and native Southside resident. Dr. McDonald presents specializes in nutrition and changing the diet and cooking habits of underrepresented communities on the south side of Chicago. On Juneteenth, the two shared critical information with community members about health, nutrition, and life-saving skills so they prepared so they are prepared to face with traumatic events. The booth featured adult and child CPR mannequins and wound simulation mannequins with which Dr. Pratt illustrated critical life-saving steps that can be taken into medical help is available. Here I'm going to break from the article, and if you have the opportunity, uh, if you have the opportunity to see the show, The Societal Pathogen Gun Violence, which is on the Black Talk Radio Network Facebook page, as well as L. Rodriguez's page, for instance, and of course it's on the Black Talk Radio Network, you'll be able to see the Zoom video. Dr. Pratt talked about something very, very interesting. He said that if they could increase the number of people on the scenes of the shooting firearm assault scenes who knew how to stop the bleeding, <clears throat> then there could be more lives saved. So here you see he's actually doing it. Over and over again, I talk about there are little small tweaks to the system that need not cost lots of money. You need to be aware when lots of money is thrown at cities. For instance, when the Department of Justice throws money at cities <clears throat> where, the, where the police have been out of control, where the police have killed unarmed African-American and Latino Latinx men, very often this money goes to hire more policemen. So if you are trying to change your society and your community, you need to understand how to look on the web and see when the Department of Justice has a request for a proposal. It's called an RFP. You need to see 
when your foundation in these cities, for instance, in Cleveland, Ohio, where we're broadcasting today, there is something called the Cleveland Foundation. You go there and they have a link. All these foundations are, are practicing transparency and they have a link that says grant funding. Then you need to find out how to write the grant. That's what you need to do. There are people who write grants. I've done it, I'm doing it now. Then you use that money to start your own program. Don't wait for these white people to show up and give you something. Because when someone gives you something, you may or may not need it. It's very different from creating your own. Returning to the article. Just a few days later, and this article was written last year, on June 25th, Dr. Pratt brought 15 new emergency medicine residents to the commons as part of their orientation to both the University of Chicago Medical Center and Chicago South Side. Dr. Pratt stressed the importance of residents, now those are the doctor residents, seeing the community firsthand, witnessing the positive work happening on the South Side, and understanding the healing spaces and healthy food provided by the Commons, that's the organization. The residents toured the Commons, meeting team members and learning about the Sweetwater Foundation's array of programs and offerings. Sweetwater Foundation is excited to continue to collaborate with Dr. Pratt and support his work on building critical connections across communities and improving health outcomes on the Chicago South Side and if you want to see how you can have a foundation like that or other programs that interact with the inner city urban residents, why is this important? We know that building communities also helps with reducing violence in the community. So if you wish to contact the Sweetwater Foundation, uh, they are at 5749 South Perry Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60621. And their phone number is 312-508-3982. You can also send them an email message, info at sweetwaterfoundation.com. So I mentioned that there were other foundations and other places that you, as a grassroots person, you as a person who's in grief for, um, who's grieving a family member who was lost, okay? So there are programs all around America, but what I would like to see, because you're listening to me and you're following me, is more of these programs implement a system, a policy. And I don't like the word program necessarily, but habits, changing behaviors that actually result in measurable gun violence reduction. So one of the things that you can do in a blighted neighborhood is you can ask that the city, that the city enforce housing code. There is really good data on abandoned buildings, vacant lots, and how that becomes a backdrop to gun violence. So there, um, if you type in, can violence, and you gotta do your homework sometimes. Can you type in the relationship between gun violence and vacant buildings? You'll see that a lot of people are doing research on that. And so we also did a show on that. So go to my, um, go to my link on the Black Talk Radio Network and you can see that. Look around you. I wrote an article recently in the Ward 7 Observer and you can type that in and my name Lisa Rose Rodriguez and you will see that article that discusses the relationship between blighted buildings and bullets. So what can you do if you live in one of those neighborhoods? Ask the county, ask the city to enforce the housing code. Many of the buildings are abandoned. Let's talk about how the buildings get abandoned. Uh, people's parents live to be 90, and maybe the adult children are all dead and there's no one to inherit it. That's one way. The taxes go up and somebody gets behind in the taxes. Someone leaves their home, goes to the nursing home, and they don't ever come back and their adult children don't fix it up. Those are a couple of things. Sometimes there's a fire and the owner doesn't, doesn't have the fire insurance and doesn't replace the building. So Philadelphia is actually one of those cities and we do have uh, listeners in Philadelphia. So the, um, the Center for Gun Violence, uh, you can, I follow them on Twitter actually, the Center for Gun Violence in Philadelphia. 
and they're reporting that there's a record wave of deadly shootings in the United States. Corona is a societal and a pathogenic illness. Corona creates relationships that are strained that were already, already ignited through stress, poverty, no social distancing available. So now in these cities like Philadelphia and Chicago, we're seeing increases in, in gun violence. So follow me on Twitter, On Air Angel. I follow the Center for Gun Violence. I follow quite a few, pla uh, quite a few places, people, programs, that are trying to bring this down. So during last week's show, I talked about, we talked a little bit about some of the solutions. So I'm going to rehash some of these solutions and I'm hoping and I'm praying that people will begin to see that gun violence, if you treat it as a disease, a societal disease, we already have some things in place that can assist. We don't necessarily need to throw millions of dollars. And so when we throw millions of dollars at a problem and the people themselves are not represented, all that happens is the funding goes to the county and the state, and then it gets redirected to other things that have nothing to do with the problems that the people who need it most are, are trying to address. So advocacy, let's talk about advocacy. If you are a victim of gun violence, if you have a loved one who's a victim of gun violence, find, you could begin with your local police. Find out what is the normal response time for a gunshot wound victim. Is it 12 minutes? Can you reduce the response time? If you are in a community where a lot of people are monolingual Spanish or bilingual Spanish, you need to find out are there 911 dispatchers who speak Spanish? You could speak Spanish and not be able to communicate in English. You could be bilingual, but because English is your second language, you're so excited and so upset that all of a sudden you can't remember the words in English. So of course, Spanglish comes in. If you, if you know about that, um, English and Spanish mixed together. It's not, a, it's not a real creolized language, but certainly around large urban areas where there are more English-speaking people, there is, there is, there's actually, a, there are actually some trends and uh, on social media about Spanglish. What are some of the Spanglish uh, expressions? That would be helpful. When, let's go back to being a Latinx person, when the police get there, Let's say an English-speaking person calls 911, but when the police get there, nobody speaks English. Can that policeman speak English? Yes. Can he speak Spanish? Yes. Who's going to get the better result from the people who are monolingual who've just seen their loved one shot? The Spanish-speaking officer will get more correct information. Okay, so advocacy. That's a small thing. If you change the response time to these urban areas for gunshot wound victims, then you're going to have fewer incidents of morbidity and mortality. Remember Dr. Pratt. Dr. Pratt actually shows you how to tend to wounds until the ambulance arrives. Wound education is what he got me thinking about. Don't think that when you're over 50 or 40 or over 60, going back the other way, you, possibly, you know everything. My eyes were introduced to this as a way of solving the homicides. Because if people get wound care earlier, they're less likely to bleed out. And bleeding out, of course, causes death because there's not enough pressure in the heart. Or you can sanguate. Meaning that... Uh, you, uh, I'm talking about um, blood gets into your, uh, your uh, breathing functions, okay? And it's a type of suffocation. That's where I'm going with this. So these are, these are some of the ways that the incidence, the mortality, the morbidity can be reduced. And this will result in fewer of African-American and Latinx men dying from gunshot wounds. So the programs that are around give, give children, I sh some people say I shouldn't say children, give young adults and teenagers things to do that keep them off the streets. Now, Dr. 
the first doctor that was uh, that spoke on the Zoom feed, Dr. Michael McGee, one of the things he talked about was the involvement in young children going back to elementary school and activities that keep them off the street and activities that allow them to learn how to solve interpersonal conflicts. Now, in this discussion, however, both Dr. Pratt and, and Dr. Abdullah talk about a young football player who had had uh, an altercation the previous day with several other black young adults and teenagers. And they knew he would be practicing football and he, shot, he was shot there practicing football. Now let's unpack that. Had the young men he had had the altercation with learned about interpersonal conflict management, they may not have resolved their issue that way. Now I'm not gonna, I'm not advocating, you know, beating him up, but punching him in the chest, of course, could cause defib, but punching and fighting don't always lead to morbidity and mortality. Okay, and, and you think about this. If those young men who had beef with him showed up on the football field trying to whoop his ass during practice, I would, I would suggest that they would have had the beat down from the other football players, no matter what their race, and even from the coach or other male teachers who were standing by. I'm suggesting that it, would have been, it could have been an altercation that was broken up. But, but showing up on the field with a gun means that anyone can be a victim as the bullets are sprayed and the bullets ricochet. Bullets go through one person's body and get someone else, for instance. So these are, these are things to think about when I'm making these suggestions. And these suggestions that I'm making do have evidence-based practice. In other words, on a very small scale, some people have done it and they've been able to reduce gunshot wounds. Now, Cure Violence is an organization that I've often spoken about. I did invite Dr. Slutkin's team to our discussion. However, they were rather nebulous about whether or not we could maintain social distancing, which we certainly did. We conducted the live program in the Black Fire Brigade, which had been training EMTs with masks on during the entire pandemic. And our audience had on masks. And if you look at the societal pathogen gun violence on the Facebook feed or on the Black Talk Radio Network, you will see that even the guests have on masks during the interview. Some push them down when speaking, but we complied with their wearing of the mask rule. So in Dr. Slutkin's Cure Violence Model, which used to be called ceasefireblieve.org, they used their methodology in a couple of cities, if I'm not mistaken, Philadelphia, New York, and obviously, Dr. Slutkin's program is no longer working in Chicago because we see numbers that are completely off the chart, like 100 people shot in a weekend. Now, they might argue for the sake of their data and their funders that the people doing the shooting are not in the, the social networks that they identified. I could see them arguing that. However, if you live in Cleveland, Ohio, or Hartford, Connecticut, where I broadcast sometimes from, or rural Massachusetts, where I sometimes end up, uh, if you are in Springfield, Massachusetts, or Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, Boston, Massachusetts used a version of the program. So what is this program? If you're listening to me and you want to help reduce gun violence, they have something called the Violence Interrupters. These are people who are formerly gangbangers, formerly have been shot, who understand who the shooters are going to be, who the shooters are, what is going down in the neighborhood in terms of drugs trans, tr drug transactions, beef, retaliatory killings, et cetera. And there have been in the past able to identify who will probably be shot less let, next because of the familial relationship or the consanguine relationship, the gangbanger relationship, the neighborhood relationship. And so they are able to do a, a intervention with people who they believe will be shot or do shooting. And in their program, remember when you write a grant, you have a group of people that you're giving the direct service to. So all you have to do for the funders is prove that your direct service reduced the incidence of an illness or behavior 
or for instance with drug addiction, how many people stayed through your program and, and were sober and didn't relapse. Those are, the, those are the measurements. So if you have never written a grant, haven't worked a place before, don't think that this is over your head. That's part of the spin of the larger power structure. You as a victim, you as a person grieving can be empowered to change your community and get the money needed. But I want you to start out with the small programs, the small interventions, and then you can build on that. So we've spoken about the new, a new solution that Dr. Pratt discussed on last week's Zoom feed. And that is the ability to stop the bleeding and slow down the bleeding until the paramedics get there. That is a wonderful life-saving intervention. And here's what I would also interject in this. If you've taken, uh, and, and remember Dr. Um, Dr. Abdullah is a mentee of Dr. McGee, and if you get the training to stop the wounds from either one of them, Imagine that you are 18 years old and your friend is shot and you are stopping the bleeding to the paramedics come. I wonder what your thoughts are going to be. Now, if your thoughts are going to be to take revenge, maybe you just need to have that thought and seek help. And here I'm using a harm reduction model. So it's just like when people say they want to take a drink and they have been sober for five years. Their wife is leaving them for another woman. Their children are grown. The dog died. They're laid off from the job and now they want to take another drink. It's okay to have the thought of taking the other drink. Now we have to assume that you have the ability to make a choice. Making a choice. So with the violence interrupters, they are reminding the people who are at risk about the personal choices and how the personal choices can turn into death and destruction. And not only death and destruction for them and their families, innocent bystanders like Janari Riggs. We have reached out to um, Alyssa Ford, I believe I'm saying her name right, and people who have written about her in the media, and they haven't responded to me. So if you hear me speaking, um, I want you to contact me or contact Dr. Uh, Michael McGee directly uh, through Pop Violence, POP Violence, um, or through the 100 Black Men, where he is um, starting their inaugural violence intervention program. The reason why I want you to contact him, if you know Jaleesa Ford, is because he would like to donate money to her in her time of grief. If you're recalling the, late, the headlines from two weeks ago now, Janari Ricks was a nine-year-old who was shot. They caught the perpetrator. And then at the funeral, um, I was told that the funeral director actually pulled a gun on people at the funeral because they were violating the social distance rules. But you can certainly, if you type in Janani Rick's funeral, you can see that it turned into an altercation. And we can understand that people were grieving. But I'm trying to advocate for more and more people to look back on their own behavior from now on and say, do I have to solve my interpersonal conflicts with violent acts? I would say if it's true, I'm not sure that it's totally true. I didn't see the funeral director pull a gun in the video about the altercation. In fact, most of the, the um, video that I saw was taken outside, but people who were inside reported that this occurred. Well, was the funeral director home scared? Director, was he scared? Did he feel that some of the crowd uh, was interested in retaliation? I don't know what was going through his head, but I think it was inadvisable to pull the weapon given that a nine-year-old died because somebody started to shoot. Remember, if you pull that gun and, and clock that trigger, you need to be ready to shoot. You do. And are you? Are you really ready for all the circumstances? So infectious disease has three stages, primary, secondary, and tertiary. So when you medicalize gun violence the way I am as a type of pathogen, a societal pathogen, I am saying that the primary intervention can be 
interpersonal conflict resolution. Remember, if African-American men are shot most likely by a friend, acquaintance, or relative, and this doesn't negate the police shootings because the police shootings are steeped in a systemic racism that white people still can't understand. Even the white people with the Black Lives Matter sign on their front lawns in neighborhoods where redlining still occurs, and I happen to live in one of those neighborhoods, they don't understand systemic racism. They would like to, but in order to do that, you have to get rid of your own white privilege. And for that, I would suggest if you are a white European uh, person who's watching my show, I would like for you to read a book called What is Wrong with White People? Um, that is not written by a black person. That is written um, by a white journalist. And I'm going to give you her name shortly. I went to see her, um, actually went to see her um, lecture in um, Hartford, Connecticut. She comes on MSNBC quite a bit. So um, I will give you her name in a second. Another book to read is um, any, anything by Cornell, anything by Cornell West would be very helpful. So what's, what's the matter with white people? Why we long for, um, why we long for a golden age that never was, and that's by Joan Walsh. So Joan Walsh, uh, the book is about, I'd say the book's about four, four years old, maybe now. What is wrong with white people by Joan Walsh? So she discusses white privilege. She discusses a lot of the blue collar sentiments of white men and their resentment against people of color. That is um, one book I would suggest you read by Joan Walsh. Um, the other one would be um, by Cornell West. And actually, um, there's a whole list of books that you can read by Cornell West so you can understand what racism is. Now, for our, our white followers, I'm just reminding you that you don't have to navigate the society as a minority. So therefore, you have to understand what the advantages are for being a, uh, a person that represents most of the people. I've disclosed that I represent two groups of people. I do have Native American paperwork, but I'm not an official member of a tribe, but some members of my family are members of Choctaw, Chickasaw, and uh, even Cherokees in Oklahoma. Some of them even live on the reservations. I don't have that paperwork, but I identify as African-American first because that's my race and I identify as Latinx second because that's my ethnicity. So Cornell West, Race Matters is a really good, uh, a really good book about how to understand what race is. Because some white people believe that race is, um, it's something that brown and black people perceive as a barrier perceive as troublesome and they don't understand um they don't understand microaggressions for instance uh, a microaggression i had uh a microaggression let me just give you an example of some people who had micro uh, microaggressions happen that are famous uh when condoleezza rice was in the white house sometimes she would go to a meeting and she would the secret service would not let her in because they didn't think that the Secretary of State was a black woman. Uh, Vanessa Williams describes being at a White House party and when she got in line to get her food, a white lady took the plate from her and said, oh, thank you, because she believed that she was a server with the $10,000 cocktail dress on. So these are little small things, and sometimes the white people become aware of it later, but they still don't know why they've done it. So why is this important? This is important because systemic racism plays a role in our overrepresentation of gun violence. Now, some people are going to say, well, we're doing it to each other. It is the societal circumstances. It is the neighborhood. It is the poverty. It's the substandard housing. It's the lack of high school graduation. And then another thing that happens to some of us in the hospital is we, we don't have medical insurance. So why should the doctor spend all that time and money? 
I'm just keeping it real for you here, on someone who doesn't have insurance. Some of the doctors are going to, some of the doctors are going to be able to bill you directly for what it costs to fix your gunshot wounds. And so another thing that happens that people are doing for prevention. So sometimes you need to hear me talk about the background and why the prevention works. Some places are putting up intervention in place when someone is shot. Now, talking to the police in the emergency room, it's just, it doesn't happen. Not much comes out of that, especially if um, you and your crew are interested in the revenge. I've mentioned before that if you ever watched the first 48, they did a show and all they did on the show was to show each person of interest on a previous episode, okay? And then they showed that that person was murdered. Now, if you watch the show, you'll see that the policemen who are on the street, the detectives in particular, they begin to know who lives in the neighborhood, who's a gangbanger, who's unemployed, okay? And they ask, was this person at the party? Was this person known to hang out there? So this, you'll begin to see that they are not necessarily using the word social circle, but they know a group of people are most likely to know both the victim and the shooter. So one of the things that happens on the show is that we see that the people that they interview who are persons of interest know the victim. And then on the next show, those people fearing retaliation get the jump on that person or feeling that he snitched and they shot him and killed him. So the gunshot, um, the gunshot cost a total of $40 billion in medical public services and work loss costs, according to Google. Uh, there's an article called uh, Science Direct. I don't know if I have time to read all the article. Um, in the US, gunshot wounds are $150,000 per gunshot survivors. Okay, these people who are shot don't own a home and their mama doesn't own a home. That costs $154,000. Some of you can critique me for that, but I do my homework and that's not that demographic. So a little bit from the sciencedirect.com article, and of course, Scotty, will, he can post this for you. And you can review the show, The Societal Pathogen Gun Violence. We're gonna go for about nine more minutes. This article estimates the cost of US gunshot and, and cut and stab wounds by intent. It also compares the US to Canadian gunshot experience where incidents data are from published sources. Remember, I, I give you public health epidemiological language. You need not have the degree, you need to understand the concept so that you as a victim or you as a, uh, a survivor, if, obviously you can't be dead and watching the show, but you've been shot and you um, lost a finger, you've been shot your toe is missing, shout outs to um, Megan the Stallion. You're shot at and you're living with bullets. Sometimes it happens, the doctor doesn't uh, remove them. My former uh, husband's father received a bullet in the head in the uh, French-Algerian War, um, primarily um, because they didn't have the ability to operate and he lived with, with it until he died. So. Those are the morbidities. But if you are grieving because your child, your husband, your son, your neighbor got shot, you have the ability to change what's called the incident rates. And the incidence rates are new cases. So this article says that they compare what happens in Canada to what happens in the, in the United States and the cost. So let's just think of the 154 thousand dollars easy that this runs up per person suppose that hundred and fifty four thousand dollars could be rechanneled to an education program suppose for every gunshot wound victim this weekend coming up in chicago a hundred and fifty four thousand dollars 
was spent on that person's grammar school education, middle school education, high school education, training. Suppose $154,000 per gunshot wound, and this is just, this is a low estimate. I've seen it higher, but I'm using sciencedirect.com. Uh, I'm using this article. Suppose that was used to renovate a property each time in a neighborhood where the boards cover the what should be glass windows, for instance. So those are some of the things that I'm suggesting. It's not, this is not rocket science. And this can be done by people who don't have a lot of education, who just want to change their numbers. The reason why I'm mentioning this is I know good and damn well that when the funding comes down from NIH, Department of Justice, the Centers for Disease Controls, whose hands are tied doing gun research, but when monies like this become available, the crime victims' families don't write the grants. So what happens to the money? It doesn't do much for them. So if you want to see this article, uh, cost of gunshot and cut stab wounds in the United States with some Canadian comparisons from Science Direct, uh, I'll send it to Scotty and he will be able to upload it for you to click on later on this afternoon. So if you haven't watched the live broadcast, The Social Pathogen, The Cures, The Culture, please do so. Uh, you can see Kwabena Rasulu, who, who works very diligently, very diligently um, on his program, Clear the Airways, because he also believes that the language that we use, the bitch word, the whole word, for instance, the N word, that they cause us to believe that we are not full-fledged human beings, that it's the type of societal lack of self-esteem. And that's very, very compelling. And when you think of a lot of the new rap, the words are, are in fact describing sex acts. So what are you getting from this as a teenager when you're listening to this music? If you're an, I actually don't listen to most of the new rap. I listen to very old school rap, Run DMC, for instance. I listen to Rock the Bells, LL Cool J's Rock the Bells. And yes, they do curse from time to time, but they're still, there used to be a um, rap music as a genre used to follow a type of a format where it was a narrative. Maybe you do describe yourself in jail like Grandmaster Flash, but the idea of describing yourself in jail was not to glorify jail. That was to deter you from going there also. So um, you can also follow Kwabena uh, Rasu on um, Facebook and Twitter. So that's all I'm going to talk about today. Um, gun violence can be cured. I do have a hashtag. I have two of them, Cure Gun Violence and Gun Violence Can Be Cured. You can follow me on Facebook as well, Angel Fall Host on Facebook. And I want to thank you so much for tuning in to the Black Talk Radio Network. See you next week.